As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 403 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, March 22nd, 2010, and we are ready to go on with another episode. Today we're going to be taking your questions, your comments, your commentary, be a little bit of politics in today's show because you guys are asking about it. I guess it makes sense with the things that are going on. Uh, as you'll see when we cover our first question, most of what's going on, I'm not surprised about at all. Not even a little bit. I'm sad to say um, over the weekend another one of my predictions came true. Another one of those predictions that uh, I don't want, or at least it came closer to being true. And it looks like it's inevitable now. And Rest assured, I'm not happy about being right. I, I would really like to be wrong about that. Of course, that has to do with the uh, the healthcare bill. But we're not really going to talk much about that today. We're going to try to stick to more things that are practical, uh, fact-based solutions, action-based solutions, things that you can do. Before I get into housekeeping, I'll give you an example of uh, what's been going on around here. Um, in spite of, once again, the claims of global warming, here we are in March. It is, uh, well, today is uh, March 22nd. So Saturday was March 20th, 20th, right? So March 20th in Dallas, Texas, guess what happened? It snowed. And it snowed just a little bit. It actually snowed a little bit down my way, down here in the Arlington, Mansfield area. We got about a half inch to an inch, depending on what part of the yard you looked at, which side accumulated better. Uh, my lettuce was completely buried in snow, more on the garden in my efforts there in just a second, and how this affected or did not affect them because of the measures we took. Uh, but up in Plano, up in Frisco, where I used to work, those guys got like between six and eight inches of snow. That's not that far away. It's, well, as you guys remember, it's about a 50-mile commute, but it's only about, I would say, uh, 25 to 30 miles maximum actually north of where I live. So uh, it's, an, it's an interesting situation that we're in today. So how did this affect me? Well, it didn't really affect me much at all. Uh, I did want to get an early start, so I had some really early pepper plants. They're already about six inches tall and doing good. Some of them have buds and little peppers on them already. Uh, they're in one giant pot. I have about half a dozen tomato plants that are also uh, being pot grown. And I put them in these great big huge pots, the ones I found last year. So right now my kitchen floor is completely covered with these big giant pots. Maybe I'll do a quick video today before I put them back outside. But everything made it through great. The lettuce you guys saw in my video, covered in snow, doing great. And a couple basil plants that are in the ground. I covered them with five-gallon buckets, doing great. So everything survived. Uh, because I didn't jump the gun. Hopefully, if you've jumped a gun this year, this little cold snap that just came through the middle of the country like a bubble didn't get you. Uh, but if it did, hey, get some more plants and just get them going again. Now let's go ahead and knock out that housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, taking care of our sponsors because they do a lot to take care of you. Speaking of growing things in the ground, sponsor of the day number one is Backyard Food Production. If you want to know how to grow your own food, both in the ground, on a tree, and also uh, in the form of protein like rabbits uh, and uh, uh, chickens and and geese and all of those good things. So you can actually turn your backyard, whether it's a small homestead in the city or a great big sprawling acreage out in the country, into a food production machine. Check out Backyard Food Production. Production. Get their DVD and do what I did, and that is learn things you thought you knew and learn how to do them better. The next one up today is Survival Seed Bank from Solutions from Science. This is also about planting things in the ground, but is a survival seed bank something you buy today, 
break open tomorrow and plant an acre with the next day. Well, you could, but that's not its intent. Its intent is these are specially stored seeds designed to last for up to 20 years so that you always have a stockpile of seeds in case of an emergency. So this is a supplement to your long-term agricultural planting. It's a great product. recommend you check it out. Again, it's from Solutions from Science. You'll find both of our sponsors on today's website. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. Please do that even if you are not... Uh, an iPod user. You can get iTunes for free. Subscribe. Please put a nice review about us. And I'll tell you what, there's a guy, kind of a mean-spirited guy that doesn't like me, uh, that put a negative review on iTunes, which I don't care. But he got a bunch of his friends to say it was helpful. If you're an iTunes account user, if you go pull up like some of my 100-plus positive reviews instead of the like three or four negative reviews and say they were helpful, that'll help those kind of move to the top of which reviews are most helpful. Because I, I don't want people misled about the show by somebody who obviously has emotion and mental problems, because this guy does. Uh, he was kind of a stalker for a while before I scared him away. Uh, but if you guys could do that, that would be helpful. Next up is, uh, you know, connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll get discounts from, I think it's like 18 vendors we have now. And uh, the latest one was Honeyville Grains. Honeyville Grains, 10% off of everything. I'm talking to them, and I'm going to have them send me some cool stuff to do some YouTube videos with. I took all my all my eggs uh, and uh, powdered butter to Arkansas the last trip we made, and I was like, man, I should have left at least a couple cans of that here. Uh, so I'm going to see if I can get them to, to comp that to me uh, for a, uh, a little plan I have. I was watching Ron Hood's video this weekend, and uh, one of his videos from his DVD series, and, he was, and uh, his wife, Karen, was showing how to make Bannock. And they were mixing butter into the Bannock. And, of course, it gets kind of crumbly. And they use uh, margarine instead of butter because it lasts longer in the wilderness and things like that. I thought, you know what? If you use powdered butter in Bannock, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It'll last, especially if you back seal it or even just keep it in a good, tightly sealed Ziploc bag. So I'll be doing a video with Bannock in the future with some few additions, one of them being using powdered butter versus the way most people do it. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And here is the first question. comes from a guy named Tom, Jim, Harry, Frank, Sue, uh, and you name it. There's about 20 people that have emailed me about this over the weekend. Uh, the House passed a, at least a version of the Senate's health care reform bill, the one that's been fought so hard, the one that the Tea Partiers are upset about, you know, the health care bill, uh, the one that has been sensationalized by both sides. One side has said it is, hallelujah, glory, we will all be saved and have health care now when that is not the case. And the other side says that, you know, it's going to turn the entire United States into Nazi Germany and they will be putting people to death on a daily basis, which is also not the case. The truth is usual life somewhere in between. But this bill stinks. Uh, it does take away freedom of choice. It does have language in it to let them find people who don't have health care. So if you don't qualify for the government's program and you don't buy your own health care, you don't get it from work, and you still are uninsured, uh, you have to pay the government a fine now if, if this thing completely goes through. And it looks like it's going to go through. And what people want to know, and this is one of the things I got from a few people, why haven't I been sounding the charge to fight it over these last couple of weeks? Because I told you in, I think, again, it was November, they're going to pass this. And uh, I felt like everything had been said. There, there was very little left to be said at this point. The people that still wanted to say it were saying it. And I, again, focus on solutions, not problems here at the Survival Podcast. And what do I think is going to be the result of this now? I think you will see a massive, 
a massive exodus of Democrat uh, congressmen and senators in the coming election. Does that give me great, great pleasure? It gives me some. But I'll tell you what, the people coming to replace them probably won't be much better. And if they are, I don't know how long they're going to last. Our system is broken because we have a two-party system and we have socialist and socialist light in our government right now. The problem is that everybody in our government right now believes it's their job to solve our problems. That is one of the greatest lies ever told to the American people, that it is actually the charge and duty of government to solve the problems of the people. I've said this long ago. I'll say it again today to drive the point home. Can you see Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, and all of these guys, all of our founders that went out and risked their lives? And, and make no mistake about it, even like, you know, Washington was out leading troops. Uh, Franklin was kind of behind the scenes. You know, Jefferson wasn't out on a horse with a sword. But these guys all risked their necks. Had the revolution gone the other way and they lost, every single one of them would have been shot or strung up. And there's a good chance that part, you know, parts of their family would have been shot or strung up. And a lot of the guys that were kind of statesmen uh, that were captured were shot and, did have, and were strung up and did have their families shot and strung up. So all these guys took huge risks to life and to liberty and to their sacred honor to, to revolt against England and create the United States of America. And can you see, they were all sitting around and going, do you think it's worth it? And you see, you see Washington saying to, to, to Jefferson and Franklin, you know, guys, I think it is because if we do this, we can create a, a country where we can solve everybody's problems. Do, do you really think that's what this country was all about? See, but government has been led to believe today that it's so big, it's so massive, it has so much money, it has so much power, it's got to do something with it. So a lot of these guys aren't evil, they're just misguided, because government can't fix problems. And every, every problem that every, anybody's ever brought to me and said, well, Jack, they did fix this, or they did fix that, they've always been problems that government has first created. So it stands to reason if you create a problem, you might be able to solve it. But when it comes to the just normal, everyday living, nothing solves problems like human ingenuity and human freedom. So what do I think is going to be the outcome of this? Uh, we're going to go deeper in debt. It's going to further tank the economy. It's going to put greater strain on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, which already have a $100 trillion hole in them between now and 2050 combined. So all, I know, all that does is accelerate it. So I think it's very bad for the economy. Long term, I think short term you might actually see a little bump up in the economy. Remember, folks, these guys want to get elected, so there's going to be a lot of money coming out of the medical industry uh, with more insurance because it's just recycling the money. How is this good for government? Why do they really want this? Remember, all government needs to profit is to make money flow. As long as money flows, government profits because there's taxes around every corner. This bill is about control and it's about taxation. And that's all that it's about, and that's all that it's ever been about. And it's the misguided people in your government that believe if they get a little bit more control and a little bit more tax money, they'll be able to fix it. When what we need is a little less government, a little less control, and a little less tax dollars. But that is absolutely enough for politics today. I didn't even want to talk about this, but so many people asked about it, I had to bring it up. People want to know, what can we do? Well, you know what you can still do? You can still call your congressional clown, you can still call your senate clown, and you can tell them, you know what, I know what you did and I appreciate it, or I know what you did and I'm going to get you. Right? And if it's in the Senate, you could say, hey, look, you guys better keep fighting. Even if you lose, we better see you fight all the way to the ground. If you don't fight to the ground, we're not going to fight to the ground for you next time. But I don't think that we're really going to see much of a difference no matter what you do at this point. 
The ass clown is getting his health care reform. He's going to make himself out to be the new FDR. Hopefully the Shiva won't buy it. I don't know. I don't know. But I'll tell you what's going to happen for the next two years. Nothing. That's what the bill's going to do for the next two years, really, is absolutely nothing. That gives the ass clown just enough time to say he did it without anybody seeing the consequences and run for re-election. So you can figure it out from there. Let's take something a little bit more proactive. Here's a little more positive of a story. This comes from Rick in uh, Southern California. I guess he's exercising his Second Amendment rights, even though most of the people in his government don't believe he should have them. He says, hey, Jack, after you're listening to your show on Shotguns of 22s, I bought a single-shot 20-gauge shotgun for $69 at the local gun shop. Great find. The gun is in solid condition. However, it has light rust here and there, nothing major. What would you recommend to remove it? Thanks, Richard in SoCal. Uh, great deal. Uh, sounds like you got a good deal on the gun. Now, if it's an NEF partner, you probably could have got it brand new for about 89 to $95 uh, at a sporting goods store. Of course, in California, because it costs more money to do business in that line of work, maybe it would have been 100 and some. So maybe you save 25 30 bucks if that's what it is. If it's a little bit more expensive of a single shot, maybe you, maybe you did really good on the savings. Either way, you've saved some money, and that's great. Here's my feelings about guns that are a little bit dinged up. I love them. Because you don't freak out, you don't worry about digging them up and scratching them up. And let's let's face it, on a sub hundred dollar gun, you don't really have to worry that much about digging the damn thing up and scratching it up anyway. Uh, as far as uh, weapons go, a single shot twenty gauge is a great gun. It has a lot of potential, a lot of flexibility. As far as your rust issue, what I would do uh, with it is I would use some triple O or double O steel wool. Triple O is probably better and going to do a little less uh, surface removal of your bluing uh, and some WD forty. And I would, I would not try, don't try to rub it, rub it real hard, you know. Just uh, soak the steel wool in the WD-40 and lightly rub it. Do that a few days in a row instead of trying to get it all at once. And leave a little bit like a film of WD-40 on the rust, and it will slowly eat that rust away. Once you get the rust either gone or down to the level that you're happy with, I want you to completely wipe off the WD-40. Uh, something uh, along the lines of isopropyl alcohol. Uh, will do a good job of, of taking that off. And once that's good and clean, if you've removed any bluing, uh, Birchwood Casey makes a product called Permablue. And you can apply a little bit of that. And this is not something good to, like, re-blue an entire weapon, but when you have little spots with a little bit of blue missing, you can use a little bit of that and keep adding it till the darkness comes up to the area around it. And then take, again, steel wool and kind of just buff it until it kind of blends in with what you have. And you can make that gun probably look absolutely brand new and get rid of all that surface rust. So good find, good question. Let's take another one. All right, here's another one. This question comes from Jason. Jason says, Jack, I want to start composting at home for my garden, flower beds, etc. From what I've read so far, the two most popular ways to do this is a compost bin or a compost pile or some sort of worm bins, vermiculture. I respect your opinion on these matters. I was wondering if you had found one to work better than the other. I would prefer something low-maintenance, uh, yet maintain good quality compost. Well, they're actually two entirely different uh, ways of making compost, and because of that, you have two entirely different products. The compost that you make through a normal compost pile or bin 
uh, really would actually make pretty good worm food. And that's why it's a good thing to be putting in your garden because not only will it provide nutrients uh, to the soil, it will also provide nutrients to the soil life. Remember, whenever you feed in your garden, you're not feeding the plants. This is a, a, a nuance, but an important one. You're feeding the soil. You feed the soil, and then the soil, through its interactions, feeds the plants whatever it is they choose to extract from it. So you're always feeding the soil. So when you put compost on your soil, you're feeding your soil, and you're creating a great environment environment for earthworms. When you create vermicompost, you're kind of creating the results of worm eat, worm eating, worms eating, right? So what you end up with mostly is worm castings, better known as worm poop, uh, and a massive amount of little baby worm eggs and little baby worms that are so small you can't see them because they've just hatched. So when you put that on the soil, what you're doing is you're direct fertilizing the soil and feeding the soil with worm manure. So it's not that one is better than the other. They're two entirely different practices. As far as which one works better, that depends on what you mean. If you want low maintenance, a compost bin that you just throw stuff on and flip over once in a while is about as low maintenance as it gets. Your worms require a little bit more attention because they're going to create drainage, and that's going to give you another source of something that you can use to fertilize things. And you have to worry a little bit about their, more about their temperature and making sure that you're putting – so if you don't put anything in your compost bin right, for uh, three weeks – it's no big deal. Everything that's in there is just going to keep breaking down, and you haven't added anything to it. In fact, it might be a good thing that you fill one up and then wait a while and go fill another one up and then wait a while and then fill another one up and then start doing your rotations of turning. Because if you keep putting new stuff on top of a compost bin and the stuff on the bottom is broken down, the stuff on the top is brand new. It hasn't even started to break down yet. So you get things kind of out of whack that way. So it's good to actually have rests in between. If you don't put anything on your worm bin for a few weeks, your worms start to go hungry because they're depending on you because they've concentrated in that area and they've concentrated in that bin and they now need you to feed them. So now you basically have sort of kind of a pet, a couple hundred thousand pets, these little worms that are, are you know relying on you to feed them. So there's a little bit more maintenance there. Here's my view, though. The most valuable form of composting you can do is vermicompost because you are getting those worm castings, and they, that does have such a great value, and it does take away a lot of your waste. Uh, composting in bins is good. I do it. I even have a video for the members on how to do it, uh, how to build a compost system out of uh, cheap garbage cans. But that being said, there is a third way that I've learned over the years studying Bill Molson's work that I think is the way to go primarily. And that is you take your waste from a day or two, and, you you know, I keep a little, the plastic big coffee cans like Folgers comes in, I keep one of those on the counter. And every time we have orange peels or, you know, anything like that, I throw it in there. And uh, I go outside, and sometimes I just dump it on the compost pile. But once it's warmed up and the plants are going and everything like that, what I pretty much do is I go out to my garden bed, and I go to wherever the spot was I did this last, and I go one section over, and I start pulling the mulch back. And I lay all the garbage, you know, which is actually food waste. Remember, it's only the stuff you would compost, uh, organic things that break down and no meat. I lay it right on top of the soil, and I bury it with the mulch. And I compost it in place, and I never have to move it again. So I work less. The other thing is, when you compost, if you think about a compost bin, you have this huge pile of stuff. By the time it's done composting, it's reduced down in size to about 20% of its original size. Uh, now, we could say, let's say half of that 80% loss is water. Well, we still have 40%. Where did it go? It burned off. 
And it released a tremendous amount of nutritive energy when it burned off. Nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon, and other things that are beneficial to the soil. When we put it underneath the mulch, a great deal of the gas off that comes as it's broken down is actually forced into the soil. So it's more efficient at getting more of the nutritive value, the potential nutritive value of the material broken down into the soil. If you think about learning from nature, okay, then in nature all the things that fall to the forest floor eventually get enveloped by leaves because there's more of them than anything else. They get held under a natural mulch. They break down and they're forced into the soil. That's how nature does it. So if you want the lowest maintenance way of doing things, get your garden up and running good, get it mulched well, and whenever you have compost, just take a, a practice of continuously adding it to your soil beds. And there's a lot of great things that you can do that with. Now, some people will say, well, doesn't that create kind of a nutrient? Is it, isn't that like putting hot compost into the ground that you can burn roots and things? Again, you're putting it at the surface. You're not digging it in. And it's being spread out in small pieces throughout the garden. If you stopped at Section A today, start at Section B tomorrow. And if you put stuff in B and C tomorrow, go to D and keep going until you get back to A, I think you'll find that by the time you pull the mulch back on spot A again, you won't even see anything. It breaks down extremely fast that way because now you're doing both vermicomposting and conventional composting because, of course, all the soil life is feeding on that decaying organic matter. And then here's the real beauty. Uh, the, kind of the kind of life that you want in your garden is twofold. You want life that feeds on other living things. You want carnivore insects. Actually, three you want. Uh, so you want carnivorous insects. So that's all about above ground and what's above ground to attract them. Uh, you want pollinating insects. Again, that's all about what's above ground. So nothing you do in the soil other than creating good living conditions uh, is going to matter for that. But the third kind of life you want in your garden is the kind that eats dead matter. You want things that are decomposers. So worms are decomposers. They don't eat living things. Maggots are decomposers. They don't eat living things. Um, because the things that eat living things, of course, feed on your plants. So if you constantly add food for the creatures that eat as a decayer, you create less room in the biosphere for the, the creatures that eat your plants, and you create a better overall ecosystem. Pretty cool huh? how it all works together if we just stop thinking about what man thinks is a good idea and stop and look at the forest and let the forest be our teacher. Let's go ahead and take another one. Well, here's another example of uh, the government proving how incompetent it really is. I'm going to tell you a story uh, about what's going on right now. And this story is on Yahoo News. I'll put a link today so you can go look uh, at it and marvel at the asininity of the story. I don't know if asininity is a word, but it is now. The ass clownery, I guess, of what's going on here. In California, as we all know, in the, the San Joaquin Valley, we've had a drought, and then the government decided to save a fish and turned off the water and has turned one of the most fertile pieces of farmland in the world that used to grow a tremendous amount of the country's produce into desert. We won't go deep into that other than to tell you uh, that we're talking about, in this particular instance, about 47 square miles of that area. Well, they've ruined it. It's been destroyed. Well, there's very little that can be done to bring it back because the topsoil that took eons to form is now gone. That's right, gone. It's not coming back. It is 
gone. Now, if they were smart, they could turn it over to permaculturists like Jeff Lawton to come in there and start swelling things and start conserving the little bit of water they do get and start growing other things, and I think they could actually turn it around. But using our modern agricultural techniques that everybody's addicted to, that land has been destroyed. Even if we turn the water back on to certain parts of it now, it's, it's too late. Because most of that stuff was growing orchards. So we're talking 15 years to get back into production, even if everything was perfect and things are not perfect. So the geniuses in the California government have come to an agreement with the people controlling the land and have decided that um, about 600,000 acres of San Joaquin farmland will now be turned into a solar farm. Now they're going to take these great big solar panels and put them out there, and they think they can generate about one gigawatt of electricity. Well, I guess that's kind of an upside, isn't it? I mean, that's enough to energize a million homes. A million homes will be fed with clean, renewable energy because they're going to take this land that they've destroyed, turn it into a solar farm. So, Jack, what's what's wrong with this? Why is this ass clownery? Well, here's the deal. What are they going to use to do this right now? A lifeless desert, right? Well, deserts aren't lifeless. Uh, they have ecosystems in them, so it's not lifeless, but it is a desert. We'll agree with that. Do I think it's a bad place to put solar panels? Now that they've destroyed it, not really. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think they could farm and put solar panels in this place if they were smart. In fact, they could use some of that solar panel shade to create microclimates for a different type of crop and start doing some So it could be combined. And building the panels now, if we ever become enlightened, doesn't prevent that. So I don't have a problem with that land currently being used for solar panels. So what's my problem? Here's my problem. About two years ago, Governor Schwarzenegger came up with one of the first good ideas he's ever had in his life since he became governor of California. He was going to put in a massive solar farm, and I believe the number was right about one gigawatt of electricity that he was going to create. Do you know where he was going to put it? He was going to put it in the natural California desert, the part of California that already was a desert. And Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein freaked out, the California senators, and said, you know what, we can't do that. It will destroy the, the, the desert ecosystems. To put all these solar panels out in the desert, it'll ruin everything. There's some little mouse or something that's going to be disturbed by all this shade that's going to be created out there. Now, if anybody's ever been out to this desert that they were going to put this stuff in, it is one of the harshest environments in the world. It's a place where you can die rather quickly, and I think that creating some shade out there probably, if anything, would have helped that desert environment to maybe evolve a little bit in a little bit of a positive way. But it certainly wasn't going to do any harm. So that was not okay, though, and the idea got squashed. And uh, to be fair to Schwarzenegger, he said, if we can't put solar panels in the desert, I don't know where the hell we can put them. And that was an exact quote. Uh, I won't do his accent because I'm so poor at it. Um, but now it's okay for man to take one's fertile land, turn it into a desert, and now we can put solar panels into that desert. Folks, this is why I tell you your government can't solve problems. And if you look at this, this is going to be spun positively eventually if they get it done. They're going to say, look, the government fixed this. We had this land that was destroyed. And what they're talking about is turning solar into a cash crop. So the farmers that had the land will now be able to profit from solar energy. So they're not going to get all the money, obviously, but solar companies are going to come in just like an oil company or a wind company does. 
and say, look, we'll put the panels on, and for every watt that we generate, we'll pay you X dollars. And then we, you know, of course, sell it into the market and make the profit on it. So the government's going to say, look at the solution. Farmers were going bust. It's not perfect, but... We came in, we stepped in, we helped, we were proactive, we're helping to fight greenhouse gas emissions and curb global warming, and we've helped these farmers turn what was a complete loss into at least some level of a profit. Who caused the problem in the first place? I rest my case. Government is not capable of solving problems. Let's go on and take another question. Right, this guy has two questions. Let's take them one at a time. It says, this is Brian from Nevada. I have a couple quick questions for you about permaculture. One, we installed a new air conditioner last year, and the bushes around them were all dead, so we ripped them out recently. There's not much space between the AC units in the house or from the AC units to the neighbor's yard. Do you have ideas about what we could plant or build to keep the sun off of them? Well, if it's kind of sandwiched between two houses, unless it's directly southern-facing, it probably doesn't get um, a tremendous amount of sunlight. It's probably only portions of the day. So it's actually probably somewhat shaded already. Uh, but it's still a good idea to help shade out the rest of the sun from hitting the plants. This is kind of an idea that I have for you. Since it's a compact space, why not utilize vertical growing? Go out and get some of the lattice like they put on decks that are set up high uh, that are, is crossing and create a lattice encasement so that it's already shaded just by the lattice itself. Use wood. Don't use plastic for this. Plastic will last longer, but it's going to get a lot hotter in that Nevada sun, and because of that, it's more likely to scorch your plants. Now, some places I think plastic makes a lot of sense. I'm hedging my bet with you being in Nevada that in the middle of summer that that plastic is going to be a lot hotter than wood. Okay, so go with wood lattice. It's also a fairly dry environment that you're in, so you're not going to have to worry about the wood rotting out uh, very quickly anyway. And the stuff's cheap and easy to replace. Do your posts down into the ground and put your lattice at least an inch above the ground. Don't let the lattice go down and make contact with the earth. In fact, two to three inches would be fine. That's because down there on the earth, where all of the condensation from your air conditioner goes to, it is actually going to be quite moist. But I have a plan for that moisture. Let's go on from there. Next, plant some type of climbing vegetable. Whatever is going to grow well there. I don't know how much sun or how hot the area is that you're going to put this in, so you're going to have to make that decision. But whatever vegetable is going to do best, climbing up the sunny side of that. On the back side, you could do something that's going to climb and shade and do well. And the only thing I know is English ivy. The problem with that is the ivy is probably going to take over the rest of your lattice. So the back side, you may want to not plant anything unless you've got you come up with something that will grow back there. Again, this depends on how you, if the sun flows straight through that slot, maybe you can grow stuff on all, all three sides because one side of the house, you're not really going to grow anything. But that's what I would do. Lattice up as high as you think makes sense for whatever kind of climber you're going to plant and plant climbers. That makes you take that little bitty wasted space and turn it into something positive. So it would be reasonable that you could put maybe five to six square meters uh, or five to six square yards uh, in, in American language, right, into that area. Maybe more. Now that's a lot, right? If we, I mean, we're, we're talking uh, a couple uh Raised beds worth of space just has to be utilized vertically. Now, 
some place on your air conditioning unit is going to be the place where condensation generally builds, the pipe that goes into the house. And that pipe generally is going to have this little bit of dripping action. From that point, funnel the earth and create an irrigation canal, basically, that will allow every single drop of that water to flow and irrigate your area. And you'll probably have to water it half of what you normally. You're still going to have to water it. Uh, it's a dry climate. You're not going to have as much condensation as a humid environment. But you're going to get all of that um, condensed moisture from the atmosphere dripped into your beds. Compound that with heavy mulch, and what you'll end up with is a very effective system that's somewhat self-watering. So that was a great question because it let me look like a genius with a great answer. But, folks, it's only because he got the question. I never really thought about doing that before, and now I've got an air conditioner to figure out what I want to plan around. Uh, the next one, it says, our irrigation system is a mess. We plan to rip it all out and start all over. My wife and I disagree about what to do is we're planning to create a permaculture food forest. How extensive do you think our irrigation system needs to be? Well, um, I'm assuming you have so your air conditioner close to another house, a relatively small backyard. So you want to be able to irrigate in zones and pretty much irrigate everything. But what I would plan on doing with your irrigation is drip irrigation under mulch as much as you can, especially for your trees. Um, I am not a big fan of sprinklers. I think they're a terrible idea. I can't really advise you. I don't know your land. I don't know your layout. I don't know what you want to grow. I know you're in Nevada, but I don't even know what part of Nevada in. you're in. Southern Nevada, you know, down by Vegas is a lot different than northern Nevada up near the forest. So I'm not sure. But what I would tell you is that you need to plan to put in a, first of all, start with efficiency before you even worry about the new irrigation system. Plan out how you're going to sculpt the land with swelling and rain gardens and, and depressions and changing the angle so that any water that does come on your property takes the slowest and longest path off your property. Then, kind of, what will happen is you look at that is you'll figure out that, well, what we need to do, even though we think there's no slope, there is a slope here, we need to put the heaviest irrigation on the highest point of the property because now it's going to percolate through and you'll kind of wean it off toward the end because the lowest point is going to get the most natural irrigation. And every time you irrigate, some of that irrigation is going to flow down to there. But I'm a big believer in drip irrigation uh, or soaker hoses. And drip I like a little bit better. I like the mulch down and the dripper on top of the mulch, not under the mulch. It makes it easier to maintain. It makes it, I know it kind of like, well, you can see it, but you can put everything underground except the parts that actually do the dripping. And here's why. When you put them under mulch, the holes tend to get clogged. Worse, because it's under the mulch, you don't know it's gotten clogged. So the first time you get an idea that maybe a certain zone's not being watered well is when your plants start to die. Not good. So I would look at that approach. This is the best I can do with the information you've given me. But good question. I really like the one about the air conditioner because that's something I really never thought of before. And I, one of those ones I go, what's wrong with you, idiot? You should have thought about this a long time ago. Let's take another question. Here's a great question from Eric. Eric says, um, my city's yard waste collection center, they take all the yard waste from the previous year and process it for a year until it is perfect back compost. Since it's made of every kind of plant in the area, I thought it would be perfect for my raised beds. When you're a resident of the city, you can have as much compost as you want. Now, my question, since it's made from the yard waste of all city's residents, we know most people put fertilizer, weed killer, insect killer, etc. on their lawns. 
that would end up in the compost, correct? Or worse yet, it could be concentrated from heating up and breaking down the organic matter. Or is it possible that breaking down the yard waste and the heat it generates and all would have somehow nullify pesticides and such? I'm going to be building some raised beds and a new home this summer and thought I'd found a perfect source of compost, but now I'm concerned about using it. Your thoughts would be greatly appreciated. Thanks again for all you're doing. Good question, and here's why. I have a different concern for you. Last year, um, a guy named Garmin from our forum uh, helped me get a truckload of compost, and when I picked it up, it was steaming hot. It was uh, just finished, according to the the city, but I didn't use as much of it as I had intended because when I looked at it, I realized it really wasn't fully broken down. I actually piled it up and I let it sit, and I'll be using a lot of it this year because in these large-scale city-sized compost operations, a lot of time what you get is compost that's not fully broken down. Now, once you take it, uh, kind of expand it so it's not all packed together and let it cool, it's not that it's going to heat back up again because it's not quite that unbroken down. It is pretty well done. But what happens is when you use too much of it in one place and you don't have compost that's a little further along going on with it, a lot of the nutrients in it, since it's not broken down, have not really become bioavailable yet. What they need is they need the soil life to get in there and take the sterile product and make it something better. Now, how is this different from compost that you buy, let's say, in a bag from the, the big box stores? Well... The, the thing about that is that that compost generally uh, is in those bags for quite a while before it finally gets from the back of the line to the front of the line, so to speak, for you to buy it. And generally, if you're using compost that comes in bags, you're not going out and putting 100% of it into your bed. You're mixing it in with other things. So it gets kind of broken up, and then it, it's easier for it to break down and become bioavailable over time. More So I used a lot of that compost, but in small quantities, Versus if I wanted to put in a new, new bed in, I put two new beds in last year, and you know you want to go, let's say, a half compost, half peat moss, uh, and uh, maybe some vermiculite or expanded shell added to that, uh, I wouldn't use all of that compost. I would only use parts of it, and I'd bring in some other sources of compost. So that's one thing. The uh, insecticides and all, most of that stuff is going to get kind of washed away over time and broken down with heat, but some of it's probably still there. But that's going to be true no matter where you get your compost. I, I, I'm sorry to tell you that. Even if it's supposedly an organic composting operation, it's, there's so much of that crap out there anyway at this point. Fertilizers, the good news is that they get utilized. And once they're utilized, they're kind of broken down and gone. Now, they sterilize the soil, but life has a propensity to return quickly. So I'm less concerned about the, uh, the, 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 the uh, fertilizers. The one thing that does concern me is herbicides. And um, herbicides have a propensity to stick around for a lot longer. So one of the plants that's extremely susceptible to herbicides is beans. Any kind of bean is extremely susceptible to herbicides. So what I would do, if you want to make sure there's no herbicide residue, and just be careful with this, take your compost and put it into a pot, and take some, you know, known safe potting soil and put it into a pot. Put about eight or nine bean seeds in each one, water them, look at your germination rates, and if your germination rates in the compost are remarkably lower, it may not be something you want to use. But I really wouldn't worry about that too much. That's If you want to go to the extreme with it, I think you can do that. It's overall probably safe, 
but it should not be your major source of compost this year. Go get what you can now, put it aside, let it spend another year breaking down, use it in small amounts throughout your garden, and next year if you want to expand your operation, you could probably feel a lot more comfortable using it. Long answer, but since I've had personal experience with it, um, and I actually have used stuff like that in the past and gotten poor results one year and great results the second year, I've kind of worked out why and wanted to make sure you didn't kind of shoot yourself in the foot with what you thought was good soil. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. I've got a question here from uh, the guy's name is Mel. And uh, Mel says that uh, he's been considering going out and taking some wilderness survival training typical stuff that we think of when we think of survival. You know, how to build fire, how to trap, how to navigate, and things like that out in the wilderness. But the more he's thought about it, he's realized that in most of the situations that would ever go wrong, that he would probably be at home, and maybe he should spend more time learning skills about how to survive at home. What are my thoughts on this? And I think that there's balance in all things. And I'll tell you that a lot of the skills that you'll learn in the wilderness are actually very applicable to what you would have to do in the city. If you learn how to go out and trap and snare in the wilderness, it's a safe place to practice it uh, when there are no emergencies. For instance, um, there would be no reason when I moved to Arkansas, and this is not even primitive traps and snares, but there would be no reason that once I was in Arkansas on my own property during the proper seasons that I couldn't set traps for raccoons and foxes with conventional leg hold trapping uh, that trappers have used to run trap lines for centuries and eons and eons. But I won't do it. <clears throat> and why won't I do it? Well, I have neighbors with dogs and I have neighbors with cats. And even though uh, using a leg hold trap, uh, that probably wouldn't ever really hurt. I'd be able to release the animal. I might break a toe or something like that, but the animal would probably recover. I don't want to do any damage or harm to my neighbor's pets and animals. So if I want to practice those skills, then I need to go out into the wilderness. But if we get into a point where I have to feed my family, because our food storage has run out, or we end up stuck somewhere where we don't have the food storage, then I'll take those risks, and I'll be willing to do uh, that type of trapping even in a very urban area like where we live here in Arlington. So it's a great place to go practice those skills. The other thing is, I mean, when you look at wilderness skills, the main things they teach you are how to get from one point to another, how to provide yourself with shelter, how to provide yourself with food, how to provide yourself with water, and how to protect yourself, and how to make fire. Right? Everybody has a you know, fire starting school video, what have you. Well, if you have those six fundamentals, then you can survive in any environment, be it urban or be it wilderness. Now, I've also been watching one of Ron Hood's videos on urban survival, and he said something that was very interesting, and I tend to agree. He said when he and Karen decided to go from the Woods Master Series and start doing the Urban Master Series, they realized that it was actually more complex and that the city and the urban environments can actually be a lot more dangerous than the wilderness because not only do we have to worry about providing those six needs for ourselves, we have to worry about all the lunatics out there that didn't think about it at all trying to provide those needs for themselves and competing with resources. So we're in the wilderness, we might have a lot less resources. We also have very little competition for it, especially in, let's call it, peacetime. So if we go out to practice our skills in the wilderness now, there's not a lot of competition for ground squirrels. People pretty much feel you can eat all the ground squirrels you can catch. I'm not going to get in your way. I'm going to eat my hot dog, my Oscar Mayer, or my ballpark or whatever, and I'm probably not going to see you because you're hiked out somewhere and I'm in a little campground. So 
there's no real competition for those resources, uh, even though they're thin comparative to what's available in the city. In a city, during an emergency, you have a lot of resources. You have a tremendous amount of competition, and those resources are quickly dwindled to an even slimmer supply. So I think that there's kind of this, this area where the two overlap. And I think the other thing is it helps you learn to deal without. Once you pack up that pack and that bag and you go off to a school or you go, if you've learned some things already and you feel safe on your own and you go out and safely practice your skills in the wild and you get a couple miles, even just a couple miles away from the car, at that point, if you've forgotten something, you have to make do and it makes you think. So I think wilderness skills are a tremendous advantage for the person that's concerned about urban uh, and rural and even suburban survivalism. But I do think the two are different animals, and we do have to approach them differently. As long as you can stay in your home, you've got the shelter thing worked out. Even without a lot of heat, I mean, it's pretty easy to, to keep warm inside of your home. Uh, even without heating, there's some things that can be done. Basically, you create small wilderness shelters to hold body heat inside the house. And I think, again, there's the overlap. So... We go in our homes and we want them to be as spacious as possible. We think that's a great thing. And let's be honest, as long as everything's running properly, it's a great thing to be able to turn a little dial on a thermostat and adjust the temperature up and down to our liking. When we go out into the wilderness and they teach us to build a shelter, they teach us building a large shelter is a very bad idea. The larger the shelter, the larger the area that it has to be heated. And uh, in a cold time of year, our bodies actually release a lot of heat. And if we contain that heat, we actually stay remarkably warm in a very small spot. One of the ways we used to do this in the military, we would dig a hole just a little bit deeper than the human body, <clears throat> about the size of a shallow grave. We would line the bottom of that hole uh, with a couple inches or more thick of um, material. Pine straw is great for this. We'd put a sleeping bag down in that hole, and then we would take a shelter half and stretch it flat over the top of that hole. And then we would leave one small access point to slide in. You could be in, in that little hole inside a sleeping bag when it was zero degrees outside. You were remarkably warm. You didn't want to come out, but you were remarkably warm. Now, you might not actually build it that flat in the wilderness if you're in a survival situation. We're in the military. We built it flat so bullets came streaking by at night. Unless something you know, like a shell happened to land or a grenade happened to land right on top of you, you were probably safe. So that's why they were built that way for tactical situations. But the principle is still the same. Reducing the area that your body has to warm, right? And putting as much insulation around it as possible. So now I'm home. The power's gone out. We're out of firewood. We don't have propane. We don't have a backup generator. We are in deep crap. And it is going down to be zero degrees tonight. What do we do? We start doing things like, remember when you were kids, you used to build a fort? With things like mattresses and couch pillows, we start to build structures like that, just as though we would do it in the wilderness. Now we've got the, and we're actually in better shape than the wilderness, though. We've probably got more to work with. We've got a hard structure around us. We don't have to worry about water getting in. We have the wind blocked by the outer structure, and now we are only using the internal smaller structure to retain body heat. So, there's tremendous overlap, so I would definitely encourage you to beef up your camping and wilderness skills 
along with your urban preparation skills and your urban preparations as a whole. So these are things like making sure you're storing food, water, and alternative heat, and then you don't have to rely on those things. But here's reality. We need to know how to do these things because disasters have a tendency to pop up when we're least prepared for them, even if we're preppers. So there is a chance that one day you could end up over at a friend's house where an acute disaster hits and you're stuck there and you can't leave and that place has no power and it's very cold outside and the only thing you happen to have with you because you are prepared is your bug out bag and you're now there with your friends or your family and you have to help them and yourself get through this acute disaster with the limited supplies that you do have with you and all of your prepping at home is for not until later when you can get yourself home. So the bug out bag helps you where you're at in place and eventually you're going to use it for its intended purpose to get you from a plane of danger where you're at to a place of relative safety, which is your home, which is better prepared and better stocked to deal with the emergency. So those two worlds overlap so much that it's unbelievable. I think that we see a lot more in the media and on TV about wilderness survival because it's the thing that most people think of when they think of survival situation. But I also think that's a mistake. And here's why. People tend to think, well, what could I, it's exactly all these things we just talked about. What could I possibly need to know that for? Now, watching some guy eating bugs out in the forest on TV is somewhat entertaining for the guy that, you know, works behind a desk all day. And, you know, there's a little bit of that bravado male in anybody like that that says to themselves, I wonder if I could do it. I wonder if I could handle it. And then to watch the guy and pick on what he does wrong, because it's really easy when you're drinking a beer with your feet up on the table. So the reason we see more of that is it makes better entertainment. And then the other reason is, and this is why people think you're crazy, people aren't comfortable thinking about the lights going out for more than a day. People aren't comfortable thinking about our economy collapsing. People aren't comfortable thinking about the food running out of the stores. So those disaster stories like that get a little less play in the media. We're starting to see a little bit more of them, but they're always kind of done in the genre of a, you know, a, a land far, far away in a, in, a, in a long time into the future instead of a long time ago like Star Wars. They always kind of put this distance in there, or they do with them in hypothetical ways. I just watched one called The End of Oil, and it was Armageddon after oil. Well, instead of showing how the oil production would run down as we tap the last of our 1.5 trillion barrels in the ground, they said if magically overnight all the oil disappeared, here's what would be the consequences. Well, that softens the blow for people because, well, that's not going to happen tomorrow. You see? And that is exactly how a lot of these things come out. And that's where the blur comes for people. Uh, So I believe, yes, strengthen your wilderness skills. Yes, strengthen your preps at home. And realize the overlap is there, and if you know how to snare a ground squirrel out in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, then you can squirrel a cotton rat under a deck in a backyard in Arlington, Texas. We've done it here. Uh, We don't rely on those cotton rats to eat right now. I feed them to the snakes. Um, But you know what? I'd eat rats too. And Ron, if you're listening today, those guys at the end of your cave cooking video that didn't want the rats, if you ever cook up rat again, you need a guy on camera to eat some rat, especially the way that was cooked. Phone me up. I'll come out there and eat some rat. I won't even squirm for you. All right, so let's go ahead and see if we can work in one more question before we wrap up today. How about we end with a little bit of a positive beat on the genetically modified food front? Is anybody listening to the show at any frequency of time knows I'm highly opposed to genetically modifying our food. 
I think we're playing with things there that we uh, don't understand, and we're starting to see results of uh, the damage that can be done. There was recently a study out that all the supposed safe corn uh, from Monsanto, these genetically engineered types of corn, is causing organ failure in, in laboratory animals when they're fed these diets. And they're not being fed massive amounts of it. They're just being fed what a rodent eats when he eats you know, corn. It's not like they're concentrating the results. They're just taking the genetic corn. Here you go, mouse, eat it. And next thing you know is liver's failing. So we've learned that there are consequences to this. This generally recognized as safe, safe crap is starting to fall apart. Well, there's a company out there that I really like. I mean, I really like these guys. I like them so much that I reached out to them and said, hey, would you like to work with us and be part of the member support brigade? And they are. And the company is High Mowing Organic Seeds. And right now, if you want to order anything from High Mowing Organic Seeds, you get free shipping. And uh, we think that's a great uh, thing to have, a partner like High Mowing, and free shipping. So uh, if you're an MSB member, these guys worked with you, and you can buy anything you want from them, and they'll ship it to you for free. Uh, they're also not just an organic seed company. They're somebody that believes in what they're doing enough that when sugar beets were going to be released with new genetically modified traits, and that would go even more into our food supply because now we're into the sugar world because that's what most sugar beets go for is actually producing granulated sugar because there's not a lot of places in the U.S. where we can grow sugar cane. So they were going to bring in this genetically modified uh, stuff And I'll just read you the letter from Tom at High Mowing Organic Seeds. And this was referred to us by C.H., uh, who goes by the, the name uh, Country Boy. And that's all I can tell you about him because he didn't. Uh, Country Boy 75 on the forum. Here's the title. High Mowing Organic Seeds won or lawsuit against genetically engineered crops. And this is from Tom at High Mowing. I'm thrilled to announce that yesterday the Ninth Circuit Court in California ruled in our favor uh, in the high mowing organic seed lawsuits against the USDA regarding the premature deregulation of Monsanto's GMO sugar beets. We've won. We were joined in the suit by the Center for Food Safety, Organic Seed Alliance, and the Sierra Club, and were representative by, by CFS and the Earth Justice Attorneys. Uh, this ruling means that the USDA will likely require much more thorough research and a full environmental impact study prior to allowing more GE crops to be released. It may also result in a moratorium on any more GMO sugar beets getting planted. The USDA has a lot of work to do, but it's recently making great progress. I hope this lawsuit will confirm for them that people really care about our food system and keeping it safe and healthy. You can read my original letter explaining why we decided to become involved with this suit. I'll give you a link to that letter today. For those who are curious, here's a copy of the actual court ruling in a PDF file, and I'll give you guys a link to that if you want it as well. Uh, thank you all so much for all the great work that you do and your support of your local far farmers. The tide is turning, Tom. Um, that's pretty cool. That actually happened in September of 2009, and I hadn't heard about it. Uh, I just got this in an email today, uh, and it, it, I, I'm really shocked that this happened, oh, you know, almost a year ago now, let's say nine months ago. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited about it. And if you think about this, coupled with the recent rulings about genetically modified rice and farmers in uh, Arkansas and other southern states successfully suing, in that case, Bear Corporation, for their rice being contaminated by Bear Corp's genetically modified rice, maybe the tide is turning on genetically modified foods. Maybe enough people are getting upset. And 
often on this show, I'll tell you that sometimes I'll be wrong and sometimes I'll make mistakes. And when I'm wrong and I make mistakes, I will correct them. I need to correct one now toward the end of today's show. I have said in the past, it is illegal for a company to label their food uh, as being GMO-free and not genetically modified. It appears that I am wrong at least to a degree. There are, there are foods out there in packagings that say things like no genetically modified organisms, no GMOs. I think the GMO-free thing started to catch on, and that one got pushed back. Here's my source of, of misunderstanding. It is unlawful for a milk provider to label their milk BGH free, bovine growth hormone free. They can label it organic, which would intrinsically mean BGH free, but Monsanto, who produces bovine growth hormone, has successfully lobbied the government to say that they would be damaged by you know uh, by a statement that basically would say that the BGH is harmful when they're saying it's not harmful you the government has said it's not harmful you guys like it how can you let these people in you know uh, basically infer that we're damaging so I've made that mistake uh, apparently uh, there are places where you can go like Whole Foods and some of the stuff is labeled that way here's the big problem with it though. There's no government regulation that says what constitutes GMO-free. So basically, I can put GMO-free on anything. And the problem with that is the very purveyors of the GMOs are using that to say, hey, they should be able to label it GMO-free. How do we know it's GMO-free? It could have GMOs in it. Hey, this stuff cross-pollinates. So there's a lot to be fought still on this, this battlefront. But most of the civilized countries in the world have either outlawed GMOs or they have required foods with them to be labeled as containing GMOs. Hopefully the United States is on track to that. I think if we get there, maybe people will start paying attention. And I feel as consumers, we have a right to know when our food has been genetically modified or not. Um, unfortunately, it's probably also very expensive for a person who legitimately wants to label their food GMO-free to do it. Because they have to do genetic testing, because if I'm putting corn in it, and even though I'm getting what I think is GMO-free corn, if it was cross-pollinated, see how that works. That's why the whole thing's a mess in the first place. But the best way you can make sure that you have the least amount of GMOs in your food is to grow a lot of it yourself. There could still be some cross-pollination, but I'd rather have a little bit of cross-pollination than food that was pur purposely grown that way and then sprayed with Roundup on purpose. And that's what we're eating in our general food supply. So look... Be part of the solution. I hope that today we talked about some of the problems, but I hope we spent more time on solutions and problems, and I always try to do that to balance the show out. This is the reality. No matter how bad it gets or how supposedly good things get, our society is broken. We're broken as a people today. That's sad, and I feel bad about it, and I take no pleasure in saying it, but we are. We've lost touch with the wisdom of our ancestors, and when I say our ancestors, I don't mean thousands of years ago. I'm talking about your grandparents and your great-grandparents. And for some of you, your parents, some of my older listeners that are in your 60s, your parents. And some of you that are my older listeners that are in your 60s and 50s and 70s, you. We've lost, wisdom. We've lost touch with the wisdom that you have. And some of you have lost touch with your own wisdom. And many people in my age bracket in their 30s, if you grew up in a part of the country like I did, where things weren't, you know, so hunky-dory and these times were still a little bit tough, especially in the 70s and through the 80s, 
You've lost touch with your wisdom and your parents' wisdom. Because you knew better. But as a whole, our society has just turned their back on fundamentals. Like, don't go too deeply into debt. Buying things on credit is a bad idea. Credit wasn't a real big topic in the 70s. Certainly wasn't in the 60s and was virtually non-existent in the 50s. People used credit back then to buy houses and that was it. And there, was, there wasn't a lot of credit cards circulating around. Specifically, there weren't a lot of you know, credit going around to people that actually needed it. The people that were using credit were wealthy. And they were using it as a leverage tool. Poor people didn't have credit cards in the 60s. Today we have poor people with credit cards. If that's not like throwing gas on a fire, I don't know what is. Today we have so many problems. But here's the reality. Take your right and your left hand, put them together like the Allstate sign, where you've got them together like you're cupping water, look down, there's your solution. That's your solution. If you want to see the rest of your solution, go find a mirror and stand in front of it. That's your solution. Your actions and your decisions and your choices, just because society is broken, you don't have to live the way they do, and you don't have to live a broken life. You can understand that there is a propensity and a potential for systems of support around you to fail, and while they're in place, utilize those systems to prepare. And let me be very clear about one thing today. If you're storing food, you're not hoarding. Hoarding is what happens when the disaster comes, and everybody runs out and grabs stuff. That's hoarding. What we're supposed to be doing now is slowly utilizing what's available so that hoarding is not necessary. Because most of our disasters will pass us, at least the worst part of them, within a 30-day period. Which means if we have 90 days of self-sufficiency capability, we'll get through almost anything that will ever come our way. And here's the big thing. A lot of disasters that could be total disasters, if we could just get this country to a point of 30 days of self-sufficiency, would never actually even turn into a disaster. They would be inconveniences. Well, you can't change the country. You might not even be able to help change your best friend, a beloved family member, or a neighbor. But you can change things for yourself. And that is the start to changing things for the other people anyway, through your actions, through your deeds, and through your own internal wisdom. Trust yourself. Trust your gut. And take the actions today to plan for a better tomorrow. This has been Jack Spirico helping you figure out how to plan for that better tomorrow and have that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.